According to the National Center for Drug Abuse, over 165 million Americans ages 12 and up are currently abusing drugs or alcohol. Of those 165 million Americans, there is a mom, dad, sister, brother, wife, husband, son, daughter, or grandparent praying and pleading that they would stop. Addiction is a subject most people don't like to talk about and is kept behind closed doors. But the Finding Hope podcast will bring light to the subject and give families that are living in shame, guilt, hopelessness, fear, worry, and anger, tools and education to find strength, peace, happiness, joy, and hope. Hello, I'm Amy LaRue, Finding Hope Coordinator for Hope is Alive Ministries and your host for this Finding Hope podcast. At Hope is Alive, our mission is to radically change the lives of drug addicts, alcoholics, and those who love them. We do this through our intentional next level sober living homes and faith-based support groups for the loved ones of addicts called Finding Hope. Thank you for joining us today. Before we begin, I want to ask you if God is calling you to start your very own Finding Hope meeting in your community. I know we have many listeners across the United States and beyond that do not have a meeting in their community. So today, I want to challenge you to pray about if God is calling you to start your very own. You don't have to know all the answers. You just need to have a passion to see hope and healing be restored to others who also love someone in the midst of addiction. I will be with you each step of the way, so just send me an email at amy at hopeisalive.net or log on to our website, findinghope.today, and sign up to learn more about becoming a leader. Well, today I have a very special guest joining me. I think I actually met her in 2018 when she was actually helping lead the Finding Hope meetings here in Oklahoma City before I stepped into the role that I am today. So I would like to welcome Miss Amanda Patchen. How are you doing, Miss Amanda? I am great. Thank you so much for having me on today. I just love Finding Hope has a super special place in my heart. Um, but we were just chatting and um, it's a busy season. Yeah. There's a lot going on. There's a lot going on in my life. And uh, God just keeps showing up over and over and over. Yeah. And so, like I said, I think you started helping lead the Finding Hope meetings in 2018. Does that sound yes. about right? Okay. Okay. I was trying to think back because I stepped in in 2019. And so you were not only you're working for Hope is Alive, helping the program team, as well as helping lead the meetings here in Oklahoma City. Yes, which at the time was two. Yeah, two, two meetings. Two, <laughs> two, um, my Quell Springs Baptist Church and Putnam City Baptist Church. That and so, yeah, but now we're just growing and thriving yes. and hoping to get more and more meetings. I actually was just talking to someone in California, hoping to get one out there. Tennessee and South Carolina. So we're really praying and that we can just continue to bring these to new states, new communities, and just bring the hope that so many people need. Absolutely. So tell us a little bit about yourself, Amanda. Yeah. So I grew up in Oklahoma City. Um, I had an amazing family. I still have an amazing family. Um, But uh, when I was a kid, I was kind of happy-go-lucky, mm-hmm. kind of naive. I had lots of friends. I was good in school. 
played sports. Uh, everything was really great, what you might think of as a typical average family. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, and so you grew up, you involved in sports, it sounds like. And then did you go to college? I did. I um, decided to move to Texas to go to college at Texas Christian University. And I remember my parents or my mom specifically said, you can go to any school you want to that touches Oklahoma. <laughs> she didn't want me going way far away. Um, so that was as far as way as I could get. And, um, and still, you know, my first year in college was great, smooth. I loved it. Um, there were some things that were beginning to happen. So I'll kind of throw some pieces in there. But when I was 13, I started cutting. Okay. And back then, I, I felt like I discovered that on my own. And the way it happened was I was in the drama group at school. Mm -hmm. And they had taught us how to do stage makeup. Okay. And I went home and said, oh, I want to practice this more at home. And part of that was making bruises and cuts and gory stuff. So when I got home, I was playing with makeup on my hand and I made a bruise. And I thought, that doesn't look very real. Mm. And so I got a hammer and smashed my hand to make a more real looking bruise. Just, you know. Curious, crazy being a kid. Yeah. Um, and I did the same thing with a, a little cut. And I thought, I want to see what a real cut looks like so I can mimic it. Mm. What happened um, in that kind of innocent curiosity is that the feelings, the sensations, the rush of chemicals that I got when I did that, I liked. Mm. And I wanted that more. And so that's kind of where my, my journey began with self-harm. And then eventually depression, anxiety, um, which led me to drop out of college. Um, I spent about two and a half years in Texas studying physics. Wow. And then I could not go on any further. Um, depression symptoms overtook me. And so I moved back home. Mm -hmm. And back home, I got a really bad headache one day. I got a headache that wouldn't go away, basically. Yeah. And doctors and doctors and doctors were helping me and treating me. And they eventually landed on giving me opiate pain pills, okay. which brought back that same feeling as the Russia chemicals from cutting did. And it kind of made all my worries, all my problems go away. And I very quickly became addicted to those. So when did you realize you're addicted to him? About six years in. Wow. <laughs> because um, for the first six years, I thought, you know, doctors were giving me these. Mm -hmm. It was medicine. And um, I was hiding the problem. I was taking too many pills at once and then needing more too fast. And all of that eventually caught up with me. Um, but I was able to kind of play it off for about six years. So doctors were prescribing it like you're able. Did your family know that you were abusing them at this time? My parents tell this story where... I went to their house one day for lunch and was completely sitting at the table, but passed out. Mm. Uh, we call it nodding off in substance abuse. And I just, you know, I remember them asking me, what's wrong? You know, are you okay? And I would just always talk about depression, medication. Oh, I'm so tired. Mm -hmm. And it just made enough sense to them that that could be what's going on. 
And also they were afraid to think that there was a big problem. Yeah. So how did your lot, I mean, we see it all the time with, you know, the where we work and, you know, when did it become so much like dependent that your life, like start, did your life ever start to like spiral out of control? Did you lose jobs? Did you like, did any of that happen? Or did you just one day wake up and think, oh my gosh, I have to have these to survive? Like, I think I knew I had that feeling going on for a while. I need these to survive. Um, but it wasn't until a therapist told me, I can't see you anymore until you get off of these pills. And I heavily relied on therapy. Mm. That was like, I didn't have any friends and have anyone to talk to or share my problems with. And so when that therapist said, I can't help you anymore, that pushed me into going to my first detox. Okay. And so, yeah, I had problems at work mm -hmm. and with friends. I was very isolated. Um, for example, my dad um, had me working for him and his company. And he thought that was helping me, mm. but I was a worthless employee. I never, I didn't do anything. Yeah. And, um, I would come into work and then leave for most of the day and sit in my car high. Mm -hmm. And so there did come a point where my dad said, you can't come back. Um, but that took a, a lot of years. And so when I went to my first detox, I got really, really sick. Um, I had real bad, um, withdrawal and symptoms and things. And, they let me go after just, I think, four days of my very first detox. And I got a second round of withdrawal. And I thought I had food poisoning. Mm. I remember I was laying on the bathroom floor in this apartment and I called my mom and she said, I think you ate something bad. So we just waited till the next morning and I was even more sick. Mm. So it looked like curled up in a fetal position. Um, so is this after you left detox? Yes. Okay. Yes. I ended up at the ER and they gave me a medication called Suboxone, mm -hmm. which is an opiate. Mm -hmm. And the doctor walked in. He said, oh, you are in withdrawal. He said, I know that look. And he, I just kind of had wild eyes and curled up, all curled up. Anyway, they gave me that medicine and everything turned back on for me again. Mm-hmm. I was happy again. I felt good. I was ready to do stuff and be social. And, um, and that led to another period of about six months of beginning to abuse that medication. Mm, very interesting. I mean, we could go into a whole podcast about that, but we'll save that for another time. But so six months of abusing it. So were you just on Suboxone then during that time? Yes. Okay, so what happened after that six months? Did you start turning to other opiates again or go back through another detox? Both, all of it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, really what I leaned on then was the, um, I started abusing Xanax with the Suboxone. Um, and I remember telling a doctor one time, the Suboxone makes me feel good 20%. But then it makes me 80% anxious feeling. Mm. And so when I added in the Xanax, kind of balanced those things out. Um, that only lasted about six months. So I had a kind of a pattern of six months going on. Um, and then I totally crashed and I needed uh, detox again. Uh, this time I thought, okay, let's do it different. Let's do detox plus residential treatment. Mm -hmm. So I went and did that. 
And long story short, really long story short, the next six years was me in and out of treatment centers. So how many treatment centers did you, would you say you went to? 10 residential, like 30, 60, 90 day Mm -hmm. rehabs, a handful of detoxes, a handful of sober livings. Okay. And then um, my very last treatment center, I stayed at for two years. Wow. And is that what brought you to Hope is Alive or how did you get get to Hope is Alive in our sober living? I finished that two-year program um, and moved home and was doing, well, the best I had ever done, ever. And when I hit two and a half years clean and sober, I relapsed. Wow. And that felt like the most devastating thing. I mean, I just thought about all the places I had been, all the people who had helped me. I finally was on my feet, feeling good. My parents were in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a house. You know, things were going so well. And it and the feeling was I've just messed it all up, all of it. Mm-hmm. That is when I came to Hope is Alive. And it was difficult choice to get help at that point because I had had so much help, but also because I knew it was going to take something very different and significantly a lot of work on my part to bounce back from that relapse. Yeah. So how long do you have sobriety now? I'm seven years sober. Wow. That's exciting. Congratulations. And so I want our listeners to hear that. She was in and out of many detox, 10 rehabs, had two and a half years clean in a facility and then relapsed again. And now she has seven years. So that's hope right there. And so you mentioned relapse. And on one of my last podcasts, I kind of told our listeners that we would talk a little bit about relapse. And, you know, I get the, those phone calls. Are they this? What are the signs of relapse? What? How do I know if they're going to relapse? How do I know if they did relapse without? Because we're trying not to get in that investigation mode at Finding Hope, right? We're trying to learn to stay in our own lane, work our own recovery program, and not and stay out of that cycle of codependency, not try to jump in and start fixing it again, right? So what are, I mean, you've worked with many residents, many, many residents here in our program, and you've relapsed, it sounds like, several, many times. So what would you tell some of our listeners, some of the signs to look at maybe for relapse, and if they suspect a relapse, what might they do? Great, great questions. First, I would say my perspective on relapse, and this is not like, you know, a truth that everyone should abide Mm -hmm. by. It's just my perspective. But not every time did I go back and use drugs, I don't consider a relapse. Okay. Because I never was really in recovery. Mm. So you've got to be in recovery in order to be able to relapse. Okay. Otherwise, it's just, you know, continued use. And so I think, um, especially early on, those first nine or 10 years, that was just, I never got into recovery and I had been to treatment over and over. You know, I knew the things, I knew the tools, but I never stepped in myself all the way to recovery. So then when we think about actual relapse, um, that's a big, big change going from recovery to relapse. And so I know for me, um, it's all in the eyes. If my eyes are happy and bright, I'm in recovery. The second I use, they go dark um, and and sad looking, I guess, that, you know, anybody really familiar with the way I look would catch that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also hiding. 
when a person in recovery is not going to hide anything, a person who has relapsed is going to be very sensitive. Um, I was also sensitive to advice and criticism Mm -hmm. and I wasn't, and I'm not in recovery, but when I'm using, I am. And so an example of that, I, I was around some really amazing people at the time of my last relapse and I was afraid if I shared openly with them that they were going to make suggestions to me or basically tell me what to do. Mm -hmm. And I just assumed that would be go to AA meetings and I didn't want to. Yeah. And so I didn't tell them. And so I started hiding things. Which is really, I'm going to pause right there because on our side, my side of it, like, you know, you have sponsors, you have all these people. And like, I think my husband relapsed after five years and I think, you had a sponsor. Why didn't you just call him? You know, like, why didn't you use your tools? You know, like I, you know, because we don't understand. So that is very interesting. It's like, you knew the people around, you knew who to call or what to do, but you didn't want to because you didn't want what they had to say. Is that what you're? Yes. And I, and I would say that's the disease of addiction right there. Mm -hmm. I, I, I will always have the disease of addiction and That disease does not want me to live. Mm -hmm. It does not want me in recovery. It does not want me happy and thriving. And so any little edge it can take, which I also uh, call that the enemy. Mm -hmm. And anything that could sneak in and snatch me away is going to. And so understanding that, then I know, you know, even more importantly, the things I need to do to stay clean and sober. That's pretty much the deal. My parents, they always had an idea, but they felt that same way that they didn't want to accuse me of mm-hmm. something that wasn't going on. Um, but they always knew pretty quickly. So how would you want them? Would you want someone to approach you or not to approach you? Or, you know, we don't want to walk on eggshells anymore. Like when we're at Finding Hope, we've been walking on eggshells for so long. And so how do we, when we might suspect a relapse or I've also heard relapse. It's like when you're in recovery, I can relapse as a loved one too. I want, you know, it relapses on both sides of this, that we stop losing our anchors. Like we're anchored down and it's slowly, we might stop going to meetings. We might stop calling people. We might stop, you know, doing our morning prayer or devotion or whatever that might be. We can relapse on our side. You know, but sometimes we can see that relapse happening. Maybe it hasn't fully gone there yet. So how would you, what advice would you give someone if they're seeing it from the outside without trying to be, get into our old behaviors of you're about to relapse or, you know, have you relapsed, you know, our old, you know, reacting and how would we respond in that sense? That's a really good question. Um, Today, like these days, um, I would want somebody to immediately confront me come knock my door down. Don't let me hide, you know, pull me out. I don't think I felt that way. Um, six, seven years ago, Mm -hmm. it's a little different being brand new in recovery. And so back then I'll tell you the best thing my dad ever said to me. Um, he knew, he knew I wasn't okay. And I believe he knew I relapsed, but one night I was leaving their house and he said, Hey, I don't, I always know if you need help or how you need help. But I just want to tell you, if you do, I'm available. Mm -hmm. Just let me know. And I walked away from that that night going, oh, gosh, I can't tell. You know, I can't tell my dad. I've done it again. This Everything's ruined. 
Um, but the next morning I did call him. Mm. And so what he did essentially was say, I'm not judging you. Um, but I'm open, opening that door for you to get help if you want it. Which, you know, it wasn't forced on you. Right. You know, and it's, and I think one, something you said at a Finding Hope meeting a long time ago, you probably don't even remember, you're like, what is she going to say? <laughs> is using like, I've noticed, I've noticed this, you know, yes. um, it makes, it leads me to believe or it makes me feel, is that true, true. or can, is there something, you know, you know, using some of that phrase that, I mean, I just, I, that's always it's still in my phone on my notes from when you spoke about that. So, um, you I know. use it all the time, all the time with other people. Um, and I think it's important because understanding an addict or an alcoholic, they don't want anybody to tell them what to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it actually makes us want to do the opposite and that's normal. That is a normal part of early recovery. And so I think understanding that and, when you're trying to help somebody else go at their pace, approach it gently and non-judgmentally um, while still finding out what you need to find out. Yeah. So something you talked about was, you know, you can't relapse unless you're in recovery. And so sometimes you talked about going to treatments and you weren't in recovery. You may have been sober, but you weren't in recovery. So I've heard people talk, what's the difference between sobriety, being sober and being in recovery? So will you share that with our listeners for a little bit? Absolutely. Um, for me, I, I, I never liked being sober. Mm. Being sober is really uncomfortable. And I, I was off the substances um, which made me feel nervous and anxious and overly sensitive and um, hard to slow down my mind or hard to speed up my mind when I needed to concentrate or focus. It's really uncomfortable. Living in recovery is comfortable. Mm. It's free. It's fun. It's exciting. Um, I, I want to do more. I want to look to the next day. Well, sobriety by itself is miserable. It's a horrible place to be. Um, and so I think that's what I did for so long in and out of treatment centers is I got sober. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they took me off everything. They drug tested me. But I didn't have that real sense of recovery in my life, which part of that is because I went all over the country to treatment centers. And so when I, I would leave and come home to Oklahoma and... I lost that entire community. And so what was different about Hope is Alive is the community. Mm -hmm. I have that same community. I'm surrounded by all kinds of people who think like me, um, have been through the same things or are ahead of me in a lot of ways um, that I can follow. And that changed everything. Yeah. So when you're in recovery, it sounds like it's freeing and more, you know, you can live each day and sober when you're just in sobriety, it's almost like white knuckling it in yes, a sense every exactly. single day. And so, you know, being, you might be sober, but you're not working necessarily a program. Right. Correct. And so when you're in recovery, what does that look? I mean, you talked about freeing and all that. So what would, you know, someone from the outside say, okay, yeah, they're sober. They just got to 
but we talk about bases a lot too, right? First base is detox, second base is rehab, third base is sober, is sober living, you know, and in that sober living, you can find that recovery. So what does your recovery program look like? Great. Uh, I remember my mom asked me one time, she said, how will I know mm. when you're really doing it for real? And I gave her a little list of things, some of which turned out to be true and some of which didn't. Um, it stands out to me that I said, mom, I'm going to go to the gym every day when, and that's how you'll know I'm all the way in recovery. <laughs> Cause that was a lofty goal for me. Yeah, You know, yeah. like, Hey, okay, good, normal, healthy people go to the gym. And over the years I have realized I don't like the gym at all. <laughs> I don't want to exercise at all. <laughs> and so my idea of what it, I thought it would be turned out to be pretty different. Um, and I just kind of figured that out over the years and watching other people and trying, you got to mm-hmm. try everything, um, in recovery in order to figure out what works. So for me, um, it's first and foremost, a connection with God. And that comes through my private time, um, and also attending church and being around other people, um, and, and Bible study that is so critical and important for me. Um, after that, it's taking care of myself which like I said, looks different than having a gym membership. Um, but for me, it's important to um, go to bed at the same time, mm-hmm. wake up at the same time every day, have a routine. Um, with my history of depression, I have to watch watch out for sleeping too much or not enough um, in order to stay healthy. And the third thing I would say is it really comes out of my attitude. So it's my attitude and my approach towards people or situations or things that are going on. And as long as that is positive, um, it's okay to have a bad day, but overall having a positive attitude is critical for me. And that's what my recovery looks like. If I relapse, you won't see that. Yeah. Well, I, you said you didn't mention it, but I put down willingness, Mm. you know, yes, you thought you're going to work out at the gym every day, you know, but it was more willingness to take care of myself. And to see that I need to eat a healthy diet. I need to go to bed, you know, that whole sense, you know, here we come close to the new year. Everyone, I'm going to work out, right? Yay. (laughs) But the willingness to actually listen to others that have walked in front of you in this path, right? Yes. And so that someday now you're leading people behind you, but you're still looking ahead at that person who might have eight years or that's in that recovery. Um, so the willingness, I think, really stood out to me on that. Um, willing to, you know, evaluate every day. Look, you know, it's, I'm seven years. I'm I'm not, it's still every day you yeah, have to make. Yeah, I don't have it down. Yeah, yeah, every single day. And that's just like for us too. We have to be willing to set those boundaries, stop that, you know, not enabling, not giving them that money. It's cold here in Oklahoma and it's so easy to say, Okay, this one night you can stay in my house. Well, that one night's going to turn into 10 yes. and turn into, okay, now I can't get them out of my house. You know, and so we have to be willing to do the hard things just like you guys. This is hard. Like, I can't imagine like fighting this every single day and yes. like being in a recovery and being in that your program. I'm just so proud of you for Thank that you. you do every single day. And especially having that two and a half years and putting that shame and that your pride to the side to say, I still want this and I still need it. And now you have seven years, yeah. which is incredible. Yes. 
So before we wrap up, um, what advice or tips you've worked obviously with lots of families, you talk to families, you've been a part of finding hope. Um, but what advice or tips would you give families who are listening today? If their loved one is still an active addiction, pray, 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 pray for them. I am a product of so many answered prayers. Um, I would also say, don't give up, um, watch for opportunities um, where there is something that you can do that's safe and healthy and don't be afraid to talk to other people. And here's what I mean specifically. Let's say I relapse. If my mom knows who my closest friends are, I would want her to reach out to them. They're going to be able to connect to me faster than my mom, you know, noticing I have a problem again, that's going to, I'm, I'm going to feel really shameful about that all mm. over. Um, so especially for parents, if you have another way in through friends or other family members, use it. Okay. What about you are in recovery? And so what would you tell those of us that have loved ones in recovery? What would you, what advice or tips would you tell us? The most interesting thing to me um, is I, when I'm, as I've talked to some families, finding out that that feeling of fear never really goes away for mm -hmm. family members. Mm -hmm. And knowing that if I know my family, you know, thinks any day I could potentially relapse, I'm not offended by that anymore. It actually helps me have a better relationship with them. Um, so I think expressing how you really feel is important because I want to express how I really feel. And so we should be able to do that both ways. Um, but it's actually helped me and we enhance our relationship because I'm able to be authentic, mm -hmm. I'm able to share more about my life or what's going on, um, which actually lowers the fear in family members. It's the not talking, the isolation, the space, the showing up late that puts family members on edge. Absolutely. I mean, I remember talking one trigger, big trigger for me was if my husband's truck was in the driveway before I got home because yep. during his active addiction, he was always home before me. Now text me, Hey, I'm coming home to grab something out of the garage because he does construction yes. and you know, him knowing that. So me being able to be transparent and vulnerable, like, Hey, it triggers me. It brings up these old feelings. So that's kind of what you're you talking together. About. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yes. Absolutely. Anything else you want to share with our listeners today before we go? Don't give up. Don't ever, ever give up. I tell addicts all that all the time. Um, every day is different. Every week is different. Every year. Um, and so don't give up and don't stop caring for yourself. I just think that's really important and keep telling other people about it. Yeah, absolutely. So thank you so much for joining us. And I want to, you guys know, I like to leave you with a challenge. And so today my challenge is I loved what Amanda said about her dad. He came to her non-judgmental and said, I'm available if you need help. So remember to approach your loved ones out of love and not judgment, judging them. And the last one, I think we say this a lot, is pray. Pray. Find a Bible verse in, that you can just cling to and put your loved one's name in it and pray that over them over and over. And when you don't know what to do or what to say, just pray that prayer. So thank you guys so much for joining me this week. And you can learn more about Finding Hope at findinghope.today and Hope is Alive at hopeisalive.net. 
We would love for you to give us a five-star review, share this on social media, and subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss our next hope-filled episode. And don't forget to reach out if God is calling you to bring a Finding Hope meeting to your community. Thanks again for joining me, Amy LaRue, and our special guest, Amanda Patchen, on this episode of Finding Hope. And remember, you are not alone. It's not your fault. And there is hope. Hope.